part of it is January the 5th of 1990. My home group's a design funding the book study on the Jersey Shore. If you ever happen to find yourself there, sober or drunk, on Sunday afternoon in the summer, there's a lot of both on Sunday afternoon on the Jersey Shore. In the summer, a lot of sober and drunk people will be meeting at 7 o'clock every uh, Sunday night. Um, it's good to be here. Uh, obviously, I'm probably not going home today because I've just been, been taking a look at that, but I want to thank everybody for a great weekend. Thank the other speakers, um, Mari and Paul. Um, I've spoken with them before, and you know, it's, it's hard sometimes because you know, everyone gets tagged with the Sunday spiritual speaker angle, and you know, and I, you know, what do I have to add? You know, I play a lot of cards, ride motorcycles, and listen to how I'm starting every day on the way to the on the way to my hour and a half commute to New York City. You know, but what I've learned in AA is that one of the greatest two gifts that I think are outstanding that I've received, received is the result of being sober. The first one is to be alone and not be lonely. Because if you're new uh, and you're still alone and super lonely or in crowds of thousands and super lonely, you and I have a lot in common. A super, super lot in common. And uh, the other gift is to become comfortable with not who your sponsor wants you to be, not with who your home group wants you to be, not with who you want you think you should be, but when you become comfortable with the plans God had for you, then who you should be. And, you know, I am very grateful for a sponsor who has taught me that there's no such thing as news when it comes to God, you know. That news is for people that haven't heard about things already, but that doesn't apply. So, you know, sitting feeling guilty about my character defects at any time in sobriety, the one person I can count on that it's not news to is the very person or deity that created me. And, um, and I struggled with God, and I'm going to talk about that to make sure that other people, if there are anybody here struggling with God, and I explained to you my personal path towards finding a God, the higher power that works for me. Because that was not easy, and it was not quick. But I'm always quick to say at any meeting I speak at, that if there's anyone here who doesn't believe in God and hates AA, please don't leave. Those are not membership requirements. They're not anywhere. In fact, most of my best friends hated AA and didn't believe in God when they first came to AA. I'm skeptical of anybody I sponsor who likes AA right from the start. You know, you know where I come from, where I was raised, the places I drank, AA is not looked upon in great light. In fact, losers, everybody in AA, to be perfectly honest. And I'm going to talk about if I was a teenage alcoholic, chronic, progressive, fatal teenage alcoholic. Um, you know, you only meet other people like me in AA. You know, um, you only meet people who've gotten DWIs before they got a driver's license in AA. I've never met somebody like that anywhere else that has actually been arrested for DWI before they actually were granted the privilege of having a driver's license. Um, and there's a couple of things I always forget to talk about that I want to address quickly 
because their impact on me and my sobriety, it's, I can't put it to words. And sometimes I get to like minute 55 and I'm like cursing to myself and my head isn't looking at you saying, how did I not mention those things? Like how, you know, how crazy is that? So let me get those things out of the way. Number one, Al-Anon. I am not a speaker with any Al-Anon jokes, any Al-Anon shots, whatever. I'm a speaker that, but for the grace of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon Family Groups, would not be your speaker. Okay, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a kid who went to his first meeting in AA in ninth grade. I get sober in ninth grade, but I went to my first meeting as a result of the juvenile court judge on Long Island. And my mom was a member of Al-Anon. And I didn't talk this way about Al-Anon, by the way, 25 years, 26 years ago. I had a much different view of the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon. But I have grown to love that fellowship. Um, I always say that when my mother passed away, which was January of 2000, so I was barely, I was just 10 years sober. And on uh, Christmas Day of 2000, I went to her hospice, which was about three weeks before she died. And they brought two large Dunkin' Donuts coffees, and I brought her wig and her makeup and her crazy Irish music she liked to listen to and um, some things she wanted. It would clearly be the last time the family came to see her on Christmas, ever. This was her last Christmas. And... Uh, the night before had been very rough on me, my last Christmas Eve with her, and it was just very a very difficult time. But that morning, if you've ever dealt with someone that's in that phase of life, uh, they hallucinate a lot. Sometimes you do not know if it's them or it, and as she had said, Billy, what they gave her, she said, Billy, what they gave me is the ability to go get a quart of milk. So I asked, you know, Mom, what does that have to do with AA? And she said, well, you don't understand what it's like to be the parent or the spouse of an active alcoholic. She says, because many times if I ran out of something in the house, if I went out to the supermarket at night when it's not crowded, and I run into somebody I know, I have to talk to them. And if I have to talk to them, I have to be prepared for the most difficult question anyone can throw at me, which is, how are your children? Or how is Billy? And she said, what AA gave me is I couldn't wait to go out to the supermarket at a certain time he used to run because I couldn't wait for someone to ask that question and to report the good news of Alcoholics Anonymous and to, like, jump, you know, from the top of self-help and scream to the world what AA had done, the miracle it brought to our family. So my, my daily gratitude to Alan is amazing. I also have a view of Alan because... If you're new, there's a lot of, in my home group's a big book study. Um, if you're new, there's a lot of things you can hear in AA that are not AA. Um, that's one of the great things about the big book. It's all these catchy little phrases people have made up. There's one of them that goes, there's nothing worse than a head full of AA and a belly full of booze. That's not my story. My story is there's nothing worse than a belly full of booze and your mom's head full of Al-Anon. That's my story. You know? Like, my story's different, you know? But there's a lot of ones like that, you know? You ever run into the guy who has to throw out the 
my worst day sober is better than my best day drinking. That's not my story. Not even close to my story. You know? If you're going to ask me to compare checking into a maximum custody correctional facility at five months sober with the first day of spring break for Lauderdale, 1985, it's not even close. I'm going for the first day spring break right before Lauderdale, 1985. Don't ask me to compare days because I think that's do not convince the newcomer that getting sober is going to be like walking down the yellow brick road every day. Because if you convince the newcomer that waking up every day is going to feel great, when you've just stolen their best friend, the thing that enables me to actually deal with life. And the one thing I know about new people in AA is I know who I don't meet. I don't meet people or young men who tell me, you know, Billy, six months ago I decided to go to therapy, and three months ago I decided to add yoga, and last month I decided to go back to the gym, and AA is kind of like this, this next thing in this life change I've known. So I've never met a person like that in my life in AA. I meet people who have burned out every bridge, have no insurance left, have burned out every relationship, have nowhere else to go but Alcoholics Anonymous. That's who I mean. And I think there's some grace when you brought to that point. The other thing I want to mention is young people in AA, is that the International Conference of Young People in AA was an important part of my young sobriety. I had the privilege to share it in 1993 in New York, and, um, and I have lifelong friends there. And when I hear people in AA say things about young people in AA that I just, I have to really keep uh, much better today at keeping my opinions to myself and just sharing my experience. You know, I don't even get the debate about you, I've spilled more than you drank. You know, the nice answer is, you know, stop spilling. You know, the bad answer is, if you drank like such a blank, you wouldn't have made it to 50 years old, you know? If you drank like a pig like me, you would be like me and all the other young people I hang out with who did ten times the damage in a quarter of the time. So don't like, you know, say that just because we're young, we're not alcoholic. That's why I hate the word progression. I might have progression if it has to do with the people I hung out with and the places I wound up in. And then I suffer from negative progression. I don't suffer from alcoholic progression as far as being an alcoholic as described in the doctor's opinion and in more about alcoholism specifically in my two favorite chapters. Um, because I was as alcoholic in ninth grade as I was as I am today as I was on January the 5th of 1990. Uh, the other thing I just want to talk about is service quickly and say that I'm grateful for any service in Alcoholics Anonymous. I think the only real crime in AA is not to find out what you're good at. I don't think everybody's going to be a great GSR. I don't think everybody's going to be a great treasurer. I just know that everybody has a gift. I know there are some people who can drive people to meetings and then that 15 minutes that front seat of that car work miracles that some of us are jealous of. I know there are some sponsors who are like, nice, loving, emotionally supportive, long-term sponsors, and I'm so jealous of those people, you know? Because I kind of fall into the other 
because that's what I needed. Like, I'm a train wreck specialist, you know? I'm a, I'm a, I, I deal with people who are on the ledge, and there's only two places to go, either out the window or in the door. And I've learned because I've seen certain people like that in AA that have an aura of that they're able to talk people off the ledge like nobody's business. Like, it's unbelievable what they're able to do with people who should not be able to be fixed. Um, you know, I want to mention before I just really get going here that, you know, I love Alcoholics Anonymous and I love Paul and Marty's talks. I love them because they told good old-fashioned AA stories, you know, that, that we are a fellowship of storytellers and that the newcomer needs to hear hope. But I try not to forget how important AA is because I can be spoiled and arrogant and a pumpkin when I need to be. But if you go into my house, on the second floor, there's a fireplace up there, I pull my AA stuff. But on the first floor, very little AA stuff. But there's one thing that's on my coffee table. It's the magazine. It's the book that Time published in 2000 called The 80 Days It Saved the World. And I keep it there so that I'm constantly reminded of AA's importance. Because in 1997, Time Magazine knew the year 2000 was coming, and they reached out to the most celebrated historians alive in the world, not the AA archivists, the most celebrated, important professors of history in the world. And they said, start with January 1st in 1900, and end with the end of this century and tell us the 80 days that changed the world. And when you go 13 days in, and you get to Mother's Day, 1935, and it says, on this day, a stockbroker met a surgeon in Akron, and from that grew the Fellowship Alcoholics Anonymous, and from there, all these other 12-step groups. I'm not sure I really realize or give credit as to how important Alcoholics Anonymous is in my life and to the world. Um, I was talking with someone just yesterday about the coincidences that started Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you don't believe in God, I'm going to give you some examples of, of what changed my life. But if you don't believe in God, one of the things that I think helped me is realizing all these things that happened in AA's history. You know, realizing it wasn't that Bill looked in the bar and you know, where I go to meetings and we read a gay crowd, they still laugh now, you know, they all laugh, you know. But Bill looked in it, but at that time was a gay crowd. And everyone says that's the miracle. You know, the miracle is, is that he chose to go and make a phone call to the church and find another alcoholic. But if you do a little digging into gay history, that's not the miracle to me. The miracle to me is what Henrietta Sarbeling said to him when she called. When he said, my name is Bill Wilson, and I'm a rummy from New York, and I'm looking for another alcoholic to help. And Henrietta Sutherland said, I've been expecting the call. You know, and that's on the congressional record, because his son wound up being a congressman and read his mother's history and moved AA into the congressional record, because he knew it was that important. But the fact of the matter is, she had been going to Oxford group meetings with Dr. Bob, where he would testify for help with his alcoholism, and she was praying all the time that God would send someone to Akron to help Dr. Bob. So to me, I hear about things like that, 
That's the miracle. You know, I hear about Carl Young, and I hear about Ivy Thatcher. But what about in the early 1900s when Carl Young happens to be Sigmund Freud's intern and goes to Harvard, and what happens in that courtyard while he's waiting for Dr. Freud? He meets William James. And William James starts telling him about certain spiritual upheavals and their changes to people. And it changes Dr. Young forever. Mari talked about him last night. So I am in love with Alcoholics Anonymous, but I wasn't always that way, and I want to tell you about that. You know, I come from a horrible alcoholic family. That doesn't make me alcoholic. But you cannot leave here. Whatever the bookstore is in Indiana, Barnes & Noble, whatever it is, don't go looking for my family's guide to raising a healthy family. We don't have one. Okay? That doesn't make me alcoholic, but it's sure good for inventory writing, okay? It's sure good for having to make amends in the future. It's sure good for not getting along well with others. It's great for not being able to build healthy relationships. I come from a disastrous, alcoholic-ridden, violent home. If people don't like it when I talk about it, I can care less. I believe in the family disease of alcoholism, the one that's talked about in our literature, the one that's talked about in the Al-Anon literature. And my dad was an undercover narcotics cop, a raging alcoholic, violent man, and my mother an untreated Al-Anon, untreated codependent, and God knows what else. And in my family, we don't even believe in alcoholism, so it's very hard to recover from something that doesn't exist, you know? Imagine having somebody who has some disease, cancer, or whatever, and the people that love them the most are telling them it's all in your head. It's really not a disease. You have control over it. So my family is absolutely insane. And worse than that, you would think it's hardly worse than that, but it is. Worse than that is not all drinking is drinking in my family. So... If you just have a cup of beer in your hand, and you just pour it in a keg, and you just have it, that's not drinking. Drinking is defined as like going on a mission. Drinking is starting out of your day at 4 or 5 in the afternoon with a fresh pack of cigarettes, maybe a new lighter, maybe, you know, you went to 7-Eleven to get a big gulp because your throat is killing you from the night before, but you are getting ready for tonight's drinking and you don't know where that's going to end. That's drinking where I come from. Now, even based on those two things, we don't blame any of our problems on drinking in my family. Another crazy trait. But I have 42 first cousins, not a lot where I come from. That means my mom has nine siblings, my dad seven, do the math, three and whatever point, whatever kids per set of aunts and uncles. But that's a lot of confirmations, a lot of communions, a lot of christenings, a lot of graduations. It means that growing up every weekend was a revolving door of going to other sets of aunts and uncles of going there with rules. Rule number one is anything you've witnessed in our house between now and the last time you saw our relatives is not open for discussion. You know, what happens in the four walls of our house stays there. And you don't talk about it. That doesn't make me an alcoholic. It's not a good recipe for a successful life. It's whether alcoholic or not, it's a horrible way to grow up. You know, and all of those parties ended like a cops episode. You know? Ended with 
women with babies on their shoulders who are half in day clothes and half in pajamas screaming at men with kids that should have been in bed hours ago. You know, I don't want to talk about a couple of things, and sometimes people get uneasy, but I'm gonna, I don't like to downplay who I was or where I come from. So I like to be honest about that and not sugarcoat it. So I don't, if I say anything, I'm not putting it to offend or, you know, have a better story because I, I, I will let you know by the end of my story why I said it. But um, the way men treat women in my family is not what would be considered a role model for society. And so a woman does not ask for a man's keys at the end of the night, you know. I knew from a young age that if a man drove there, a man drove home. And if you're a woman and you watch your place, you keep your mouth shut, and you do not embarrass me in front of other people and tell me that maybe I can't drive home. Like, I've known that since I've been a young boy. I'm not saying that's okay. I'm not saying that's a good way to raise your family or a good way to raise women. I'm just saying that's what I witnessed. You drive there, you drive home. You shut your mouth, you don't talk about anything that goes on in our house. And we had lots of uncles with lots of problems. And growing up, whether it was hanging themselves in a basement, whether it was taking their duty weapon, swallowing it and shooting themselves, any problems like that were never defined around the words alcoholism. Even if he doesn't have a new contract, problems, whatever. You know, I don't talk about my first drink because I don't know what my first drink would be. That's another one. A lot of things don't count where I come from. You know, like splitting a beer with my dad at the Yankee game is not drinking where I come from. That's in a father-son handbook. You know, that's bonding, you know. Um, when I talk about drinking, you know, my mom wound up, let me tell you another mom story just before I go on here. I hated my mother. Like, no one could ever hate anyone. From the time my dad left until about I was five years, four years sober. I have no use for her. Um, it's amazing. It's amazing the day she was in that hospice, December 25th of 1999, how AA in 10 years had taken a boy that hated his mother for kicking his dad out, that I had become almost a man who couldn't believe how long his mother had lasted and why she hadn't kicked him out earlier. But that's not who the boy was at 15 or 14 years old, even at 13. The boy there hated his mother. And what happened to me was I wound up in the woods one day, great place the woods. Spent most of my childhood and teenage years in the woods. I love woods drinkers. Um, I love one of the part of the country where people drink the woods. That's where I drink. You know, I got hammered drinking my first eight pack of mil the old Miller small bottles, listening to Black Sabbath. You know, that's my kind of drinking. My kind of drinking is Sabbath, Floyd, Ozzy, get hammered, have no plan, all rules are off to the side, everyone else follows rules. I don't. That's my kind of drinking. My kind of drinking is in those old, passed-down cars that kids got in the late 70s, the Novas, the Chevelles, 
the car with the equalizer was more expensive than the whole car, if you remember those days. Um, you know, that's my kind of drinking. And the problem with my drinking, to be perfectly honest, is if I were to share with you my inventories, I'm not going to do that, okay? But I can open it up a little bit. Um, you would know very clearly that if I'm very good at something, it's easy to know how or what that is because I do it in front of as many people as possible. And if I'm not good at something, I don't do it in front of anybody. Like, I learned that from a young age. So by the time I was 13 years old, two things appeared that I was good at. Now, good at means this crazy brain interpreted I was good at. Doesn't really mean I was good at or other people. But what I had deemed I was good at was fighting and drinking. Those are the two things that I seemed to inherit from my dad and my uncles that I was good at. And more like a badge of honor on my arm. You know, I like nothing more than to be 14 years old and to sit down at your mother's kitchen table and bounce a quarter off that table into a glass and watch, like, the center on the football team who's five years older than me puke and pass out. Because I'm not a puking guy and I'm not a passing out guy. I might puke the next day and I might pass out at 7 in the morning, but I am a blackout, no old bar drinker. The problem with the kind of blackout drinker I am is that by 3 o'clock in the morning, I lose control of just about every muscle in my body except for my mouth, which is a very dangerous combination at 3 o'clock in the morning when I'm still shooting my mouth off and I can't defend myself. So, what you need to know is that my mom had just got rid of one alcoholic with the same name, and then I came along. And... Uh, in New York, they have a thing called a penance petition, a person who needs supervision. I have one filed against me. And, um, you know, I, I, like I said, I hear that word progression. If there is progression, here's mine. By the time I was in ninth grade, all I could think about on a Monday morning in school is where are we drinking on Friday night and who has fake ID. And by the time I was in 10th grade, all I could think about on a Monday morning was, I can't make it to Friday night. Everybody else can make it. I got a drink before then. And by the time I was in 11th and 12th grade, I rarely went to school on a Monday morning anyway. So if there is progression, that's mine. Now, when I had this endless petition, and I'm sure there's some people in here who remember after-school specials, you know, before there was cable TV, when there was just regular TV, and every Wednesday on ABC, where I lived, they would have this tragic family story. The bulimic mom, the, you know, the, the anorexic daughter, the drug addict dad, the alcoholic son, always some tragic family member. And so I wound up in family court, and I wound up with a piece of paper like this that had to get hung on the refrigerator. And that was Billy's contract for new life, you know? Uh, I'm going to go to school, I'm not going to smoke. Blah, 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 and I'm going to go to AA. Now, AA was challenging because my dad didn't want me to go to AA. My dad thought everyone at AA was losers, too. Um, but I went to AA, you know, and I didn't go to AA. I didn't have my Brooks Brothers blades rod and my khakis, you know. I went to AA. I kid you not. Uh, my first meeting I went to was in 
Uh, there's a big psychiatric center on Long Island called King's Park Psychiatric Center. It's closed now, but I lived in that town, and um, a lot of Irish immigrants wound up working at that hospital. And that hospital was home to a few AA meetings. And the first AA meeting I went to was there. And um, I went there, I was wearing black engineer boots, Levi memories, corduroys, uh, some kind of Sabbath or who knows what heavy metal shirt with a white thermal shirt under it. I had a Levi memory jacket with an Ozzy oil painting on the back of it. And every day I left the school, I took a pack of more reds and stuck them on the inside of my pants. I mean, that was my uniform of the day. And, you know, AA was interesting because all of a sudden I ran into this crowd of people who were like, I can smoke. It's miraculous, you know. I was 15 years old, and they were like, smoke up, you know. Everyone else, I went, I got detention, suspended, grounded at home. And in AA in those days, I mean, people smoked. You know, I mean, like, you didn't even put one out before you had another one lit, you know? And so, I love that about AA, but I had my challenges with AA. I had my challenges. You know, we, we talk about the story that says, you know, some people say, share your experience, friends, and hope, but other parts of the country, people say, well, tell us how it used to be, you know, how you got here and how it is today. So I would hear people tell their stories, and I would, like, admit that the end of their story was bad. Like, my brain could equate that. But the middle ten minutes looked damn good, you know? And I hadn't got there yet, you know? Like, I was hearing, I had not been to an outdoor heavy metal concert. I had not been to any motorcycle rallies up in the mountains. There was tons of stuff I had not done. But I would hear these stories, and I went to an anniversary meeting. Now, I'm one of those people who likes to say, with my two days of sobriety, time doesn't matter, you know? Um, I don't debate time doesn't matter anymore. Um, this might be a one-day-at-a-time program, but I'm clear what Dr. Bob's story says. Are you ready to give up for good and for all? You know, I'm, I'm clear that... A guy like me, if he picks up one drink, is not guaranteed to walk back in the door. One day at a time, because I, I can tell you what I took one day at a time to me. means I'm coming back to AA on Sunday night. Some hot girl asked me to go to a football party in the neighboring town, and I'm going to drink. And I'm going to come back to AA on Sunday night, because it's one day at a time. Well... I'm 48 years old, and I've never returned to AA on Sunday night in the last 48 years. It's never happened. I never come back. I get led back, but never that immediate Sunday night. And so I went to an anniversary meeting. You know, because I travel a lot for work and for AA, and I know that in every diner and every Denny's, there are two tables. There's the cool table and the uncool table after the AA meeting. I like my seat at the cool table. The problem is cool people don't get sober. And that sucks, but it's the truth. And I had a guy pull me outside a meeting on Long Island one night, and he looked right in my eyes, and he said, Billy, you're a pretty nice kid, but unfortunately, you might be too cool to get sober, and that's a shame. And so today, if I'm struggling in a meeting, 
a lot of the time it's because I'm looking at some young kid, young guy who's too cool to be sober. Because when you've been too cool to be sober, it's easy to spot too cool to be sober. You know, too cool to be sober means if the hot girl outside smoking a cigarette while the preamble's being read, well, damn it, I'm staying outside. And too cool to be sober is when I do come inside, I'm not going to be respectful and quiet. I'm going to shake hands, high five, get a cup of coffee, be disruptive to the meeting. I'm never on time for anything. But I know what too cool to be sober looks like. And I hate when I'm sitting in a meeting and I'm looking at some young guy who's too cool to be sober. Because I know the path that sets out. The path sucks. You know, I'm, like, I'm a bully by nature. I don't like to admit that, but that's the truth. I like to sit at the cool table and I like to make fun of the other people at the other cool table. I like to make fun of their pathetic way they live, their pathetic membership in Alcoholics Anonymous, their pathetic life that is all AA all the time. That's, I like to make fun of people. I like to put people down. It's wired in my DNA. That's also not a good path for a good, healthy life. But what I can tell you is, I used to think AA was getting straight. But it's not. You know, there's these nice you know, decorations, these flowers on these tables, but they might as well be crystal balls. And that's what I think started to bother me the most about people in AA, is they had a crystal ball. And they knew how my life was going to turn out if I didn't stop drinking. And they kept telling me that. And it kept pissing me off. You know, the first time I was arrested, when I grew up, if your dad is an undercover cop, you're not supposed to be arrested. You have these little cards to provide a license. I don't know if they have them in Indiana, but where I come from, they have them. So when you get pulled over and you take your license out, you keep that PBA card right next to your license, and then the officer says, Who's is that? Oh, that's my dad's. Where does he work? In narcotics. Okay. Yeah, I lasted one time like that. And he ripped it up and threw it in the sewer right in front of me. You know? No PBA card. Um, and I kept getting arrested for DWI. Um, I had a lot of challenges fighting. And I was at this anniversary meeting. You know, because I wanted to just talk about how much I hated AA so that everyone could really know. But I decided to give in and go to the anniversary meeting. And I was sitting there because I heard everybody talk about, oh, can't wait to get to the anniversary meeting. Last Friday night of the month, so I went. And I'm sitting there, I'm 16 years old by then. I'm like, you know, I'm doing okay. I have like 40 something days. I'm in a church basement, and they turned the lights down halfway, and some old lady, like she was like 40, right? Right? I'm calling her old, right? She's carrying this sheet cake with candles on it to a bunch of people that blow out candles, and all these adults are singing Happy Birthday. And I'm like sitting there thinking like 26, 36, 46, 56, like even if I live till I'm 56, like this is the end of my life. Like the last Friday night of the month, anniversary night, that's what I'm going to be looking forward to the rest of my life. I had a much different view of the rest of my life. Now before I forget, so I don't forget to tell anyone, that view that night, that anniversary meeting, how crazy I was. 
I just didn't know that God was going to give me the greatest life in Alcoholics Anonymous. Sometimes that look strikes me. Holy, you know what? I can't believe how good my life is. I can tell you when some of the times that's happened. Sitting like 12 rows back from Roger Waters doing the wall in Yankee Stadium two years ago, I remember sitting there thinking, wow. I thought my life was over when I got sober. See, the Yankees win game six in the World Series, unfortunately, two years ago now, but for me, the last the whole game, nine innings without security taking me out of the stadium. I know for other people that's not a long time. I know for other people it seems like, oh, it's only two and a half hours. Uh, it's an impossibility for me when I drink to, like, stay in the stadium at the concert that I'm in or the game. Um, but at that age, I thought my life was over. And, you know, it's interesting because the big book is so clear. Um, that we're mentally and physically different from our fellows. All the time, sober and drunk, mentally and physically different from our fellows. And sometimes it's hard to really understand. I was on a business trip a couple of years ago, and uh, I was flying with two of the guys I work with. We landed in this airport, not a big city, it was late. When we got to Hertz, there was one car left, the Shelby Mustang. Oh, I've never driven a Shelby Mustang, but I wanted to. Um, and we got to work with us driving that night, and we were going into the city, and me, with my 15 or 16 years of, you know, great sobriety, has to chime in from the back seat. Are you going to take this thing on the highway and see what it can do? And it's amazing the answer you get from regular people about regular things. Because as like nonchalantly as possible, he just said, you know what? I don't feel like getting a speeding ticket. Now I tell that story for the following reason. I'm not saying it's okay to speed in sobriety. But I am saying this. For a guy like me, let's just say I was driving that night. And let's just say I did get pulled over. And I have been pulled over twice. But when the guy says license, registration, and insurance card, and I have all three. And they're all valid, and the things and the plate numbers match. Like, for other people in the world, that's every day. For me, that's like Powerball, you know? For me, that's like, for me in my drinking life, from, especially from ages 15 to 23, and I can't even fathom today with the computers that are going on in the police cars, but for me, it was never about what I just did wrong. What I just did wrong was usually bad. But it was always about the dispatcher on the other side of the radio of the cop I just came into contact with. Because when he would tell the dispatcher my date of birth and my name, the dispatcher would always come back with news that somehow I missed a court date. Or somehow I just violated probation. It was never what I just did. It was always the information from that dispatcher that would wind me up in handcuffs. And I think about it today because I was pulled over about two years ago for speeding. Shocking, I know. 
But I was listening to ACDC. It's very hard to drive the speed limit to ACDC. I'm still working on that kind of defect. But I can tell you I left New York City early. Uh, no, not early, late. Uh, like on a Friday because the traffic is crazy. And thunderstruck came on as I was heading towards the turnpike. It was like 8.30 at night. And the next thing I know, a New Jersey State Trooper was behind me. And he made me get out of my car because I was going very fast. And, and rightfully so. And I apologized to him and said, you know what, I have no right to put your life in jeopardy, making you put on your life and pull me over. I apologize. So be it. And you know what's funny? When he came back from his car, he had ran the criminal history, too. These computers are crazy they have now. And he said, you know, I'm going to ask you a question. He said, um, your record is horrible <laughs> up until, like, age 24. He's like, but since then, he got, like, nothing. He said, it's crazy. I said, I know, it's crazy. And uh, he said, what happened? I said, I said, you know, I said, I, I got sober. I said, you know, I've been sober since then. And um, it, it really rang in my head, you know, because sometimes I hear people, they want to stress that you can become the perfect person or that, you know, like, I know what makes me an alcoholic. You know, I killed somebody drinking and driving, and that doesn't make me an alcoholic. I came with a whole other set of circumstances of guilt, shame, and remorse that I have to deal with till today. Um, and I spent a good part of my, all of my first year almost in custody, but I'm a good part of my second year. Um, but what makes me an alcoholic is that I can't safely take one drink. Now, I have a lot of great drinking stories, but what they all have in common is the second drink. And worse than that, when I wake up the next day and I'm reaching for that pack of cigarettes, which is now, I don't smoke anymore. But if I want to go back to a new port now, you know, um, reaching for a new port and going to 7-Eleven, getting a big help, worse than that is, regardless of what happened last night, regardless of what I got arrested for, regardless of what happened, uh, I feel completely uncomfortable in my own skin, and I need to take a drink. Um, I didn't know that right away when I came today. I, um, I'm very grateful, you know, I'm very grateful for the men and women who bring meetings in the correctional facilities. And I always get on a little bit of a soapbox and say, you know, when I hear people say they've never been arrested or never been to jail, that they don't know they have a story, you have a story. You know, it's not about who's been arrested and who's been in jail. It's about who has recovered from alcoholism. And the scary thing, or the truth is, most people like me can't get back in to be a professional volunteer for a few years. You know, I'm one of those people who at first they don't want to let me out, and then when I'm out and sober, they don't want to let me in, which really pisses me off. But it took me a long time, and I finally got my card. You know, I have a lot of cards in my desk at home, but the most important one is my corrections volunteer card that I've been approved by the state of New Jersey. That's my most important card. That's the one that means the most to me. Um, but I want, you know, I said I want to talk about miracles, and I want to close by talking about miracles. Because I wouldn't be sober today without miracles. The greatest miracle that happened when I was in custody 
as I listened, you know, sometimes I'll joke around with speakers from California. Sometimes it doesn't seem like every speaker's from California. It's like, give me a break, you know. My name's Billy. I'm not more like I'm not from California, you know. Today we only had, this weekend we only had one other speaker, but I listened to a speaker tape. I was transferred to a minimum custody facility, and I listened to a speaker tape that really pissed me off. Because the speaker said, uh, said that sobriety time in jail doesn't count. Now, um, I take great, great offense to that. Especially when you live in a place where the 36 spiritual principles of AA are really that daily code of conduct. Where it's easy to get drunk or high and the way you're supposed to live it's like living in a human zoo. You know, the laws of the jungle prevail. So for somebody to tell me that my sobriety time doesn't count. So what happened was, is I went back to that library in my AA meeting where it was in this in my library, and I put that tape down, and I just said, you know, AA sucks, AA speakers suck, blah, blah, blah. And there was a tape sitting on the top of the box, and it's in Tom I, Aberdeen, North Carolina. And um, if anyone here has heard Tom, I, if you haven't, I suggest you pick up one of his tapes because I picked up that tape and heard the story of a man who was now 35 years sober who had killed two people drinking and driving when he was 23 years old and then become a warden of a maximum custody correctional facility. And that tape gave me the hope that I wanted. And I remember when I called Tom when I got out and uh, I walked over to a taper's table just like that and said, you know, a guy named Tom, I. And they gave me his work number. No one had cell phones, you know. And uh, I remember when I called him and I said, you know, I want to thank you for saving my life. He said, I didn't save your life. He said, hey, you saved your life. But now you have a responsibility and a duty to pay it back. So that's a huge miracle that occurred in my life. Now, I used to be one of those big book speakers who would come to this podium and tell you that the rest of the AA was not even big book from me. And as a result of you hiding the big book, I was suffering from untreated alcoholism. And that's not true. No one was hiding the big book from me. I was too interested in girls and softball and young people's dances. But for whatever reason, God held me in the palm of his hand. In a fellowship, staying up all night in diners, watching movies at people's houses, going on crazy road trips where six of us needed to stay in a room because we had maybe $80 between all six of us to go away to a convention. Like, I miss those days, you know? Um, and I think about that at an early time when I went to a Joe and Charlie Bigwood study in 1993 with Joe and Charlie. And, uh, they walked us through the big book in a way that I had never seen before, and they didn't preach. They just two old guys who like to talk about the big book. But they really helped me out with the doctor's opinion and more about alcoholism. And what Joe particularly really helped me out with was to the wives. Because I was still pretty young at that time. And I was sitting in the back of the room at this hotel in New York, and I had like a ten-minute conversation with him. I consider privilege now, but, you know, the, the people in age, they, you know, will not get a chance to meet him, but I consider that feminist privilege. But he told me to take my big book and open it up to the wives, and he said, cross out wives, and he said, write in mothers. 
And then he said, I want you to read that chapter tonight. And every place it's talking about a wife and a husband, I want you to change it with the mother and her son. And you know, I'm so grateful for that advice because, like other sections of the big book where we personalize it, how helpful it is for me to read that and to see, you know, the, the damage that I did to my family. Um, Joe and Charlie sent me on a path that led me to go to another taper's table because I was going to these big book meetings and I was working the steps and had all my perfect index cards with all the amends I owed and I didn't believe in God. And I was active in service and it seemed that the big book meetings I went to no one talked about the traditions. The, 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 the service meetings I went to you couldn't find a step if you looked for them. So I went to another taper's table and I said, is there somebody who's perhaps really into the big book and into service? And he said, yes, there's a man named Don P. from Aurora, Colorado. And I am so grateful for that friendship that I had with Don P. before he passed away. Um, and, and his guidance. I mean, I think all the time today, um, I didn't say in the beginning, but this is a, a convention, you know, sponsored by a service structure. You know, I have the privilege today of serving as a member on the AOL Service Board and as a trustee on the General Service Board. And like, I don't sometimes don't really like, when we have our quarterly trustee meetings at 70 miles from the correctional facility I was in, and I think, like, how is that possible? But I'm so grateful for Don P. You know, my favorite Don P. quote, because I became one of those guys who wanted to beat everybody over the head with a big book. You know, I, I know what it's like to be the most, self, most self-righteous guy in AA. That's why my favorite Don P. quote is the following. The great thing about somebody who is rigid and dogmatic is it's the clear sign of a spiritual experience. However, somebody who remains rigid and dogmatic, it is an even clearer sign of the need for a new one. That's, he was talking to me when he said that. I needed to have a new one. And I feel like I've had many since then. Now, I love the big book about Los Anonymous, but I don't, I don't come to the podium and tell people that when you're going to meetings is wrong, or your group sucks, or you go to contemporary AA. You know, I believe what the big book says, and when I say the big book, I don't mean like my fancy highlights with different colors, depending on the time I was going through, with my notes, I mean the black book, the print in the book. It was there when I bought it. And there's a, there's a section in the back, you know, in the spiritual experience. You know, I know the famous quote of consent prior to investigation is there, but for me, the most important thing in that appendix is it tells me the two things that can kill an alcoholic. And it says belligerent denial or intolerance. It does not say parentheses, intolerance in AA is okay. It doesn't say that. It says belligerent, denial, or intolerance. Now, I came here a racist, a sexist, anti-Semitic, homophobic, hated everybody. Everybody. And I've learned how hard it is to get along with the rest of the world when you hate everybody. It's not an easy place to live. It's like AA is not an easy place to be if you have tolerance. In fact, I pray, my, pray, my prayers to God, my hardest prayer, 
is to be tolerant of the intolerant. Because the intolerant are the people that I just want to come down on. And I have to pray for tolerance of the intolerant. And, and I'm grateful for people like Don and Tom. Because what I found out, I want to take you back to 1995. I was going to San Diego. Which, by the way, I paid off in 1999. So I know what it's like to be young, with no money, trying to go back to school, trying to get your life back in order. But I wanted to go to this thing in San Diego for the International Convention. But I was having a difficult time because I was in a big book group. I had seen Joe and Charlie two years before. I was making all the amendments I could, and I didn't believe in God. And by the way, if there's anyone here today who doesn't believe in God, that's your business, and I totally respect it and believe you have that right. I'm just telling my story here today. But in March of 1995, I did not believe in God. I did not believe in a higher power. I was as atheist as could be, and Gnostic probably wasn't even close. And I had already been through the big book twice with a big book sponsor. But I knew all the right things to say. But I've learned that all the right things to say are BS and AA. You ever been in an AA meeting where someone says, I want the program the first hundred had? I used to say, that's stupid lie. You know? When I was in some other non-big book meeting, I'd be like, well, I searched out a place I could get the program the first hundred had. Well, which one of the first hundred? The 40 or so that stayed sober and actually wrote the book, or the 60 on the track before the book was published? You know? I don't distort our history anymore. Um, I used to be one of those guys who went to meetings and read the forward to the second edition and used the percentages. Oh, AA's not working anymore. You see these percentages, the forward to the second edition, 50% sober once they came, blah, 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 blah. That was me. Until Don pointed out to me that I wasn't reading an important couple of words in that sentence of those who tried. That's what the book says. It doesn't say those are the percentages of people who came through the door. It says those are the percentages of the people who tried. Well, if I go to my home group, the people who are trying, who are in all three sides of the triangle, the percentages are pretty damn good today. The people who have a sponsor, who are in recovery, who are active in traditions, who are doing service, they're staying sober. But I wanted to be one of those people who use fear and hate for me and hate for me. Instead of talking about the love, the love and tolerance that we talk about today. So I went to this convention in 1995, an atheist, thinking something was wrong with me. Then I went to the corrections meeting, and uh, it was in the uh, convention center. And I was standing next to a guy there. He had just gotten out of prison in Oklahoma. Oklahoma had had a bad bombing a couple of months before that convention. He had just gotten out off parole. He had done 11 years, and he was sober, and not sober inside. And he told me that his, every week he was going to his parole officer and saying, I need to go to this convention. And every week his parole officer would say no. And he told me that about two months before San Diego, his parole officer cursed him out. I said, listen, there's only two people who can get you to that convention, God or the governor. And I'll never forget being online in the San Diego Convention Center 
and him reaching into his back pocket and taking out a piece of paper like this. And he handed it to me and I unfolded it in the right-hand corner at the raised seal of the governor of Oklahoma. And I recognized his name from the news. And it had his name and his parolee number and his address. And it said to who would make concern so-and-so has can go for four days to the International Convention of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I left that meeting that day with such a heart. If I had if I had atheist armor on, my armor just took a huge hit. So much so that I was questioning a God that I didn't even believe in. Now, what's miraculous is five days later, I went to the Oxford Group in New York City. And I sat down, and I, and I had this thing in my head go. I was going crazy because of this guy in California. And at the Oxford Group, a very classy, dignified, 75, I don't know, 80-year-old woman, Jewish woman from Israel, with a tattoo with a number on her arm, was a speaker that night. And she told us how she was the flag bearer for Israel the Friday night before at Jack Murphy Stadium. And she talked about being behind that stadium in alphabetical order with the men from Iran and Iraq and Jordan and Saudi Arabia and hugging them and crying. And I remember leaving that meeting thinking, man, this God is really messing with me. You know, my friend Christine spoke in Minneapolis at the International Convention in, in the stadium on Friday night. And she told this story recently. Um, she was behind the stadium after the flag ceremony with the two other speakers, and she heard uncontrollable crying. And the crying got louder and louder, a female crying, so she decided to go find out what was wrong. And when she finally found the person, um, she asked the woman what was wrong, and the woman said, you know, I'm not even a member of AA. She said, I'm a translator at the UN, that's my day job. And I volunteered to come here and help AA because I speak a lot of languages to help with the flag ceremony. And I can't believe that I work in a place every day that tries to do what I just witnessed happen in a stadium in Minneapolis. And so, it's things like that that have led me to, to finally realize that I am so thick-headed that it will never be miracles in my own life that lead me to believe in God and higher power. It will be miracles in other people's lives. And by witnessing those miracles in other people's lives, I've witnessed things that are beyond human aid. I've witnessed things that are impossible based in the human world. And it's opened this crazy, thick-headed Irish mind of mine enough to realize that there is a power greater than me. And that's my spiritual story. Yours may be different. I know that every time I go to an atheist agnostic meeting, it seems more spiritual than the regular AA meetings I go to. But that's because AA is crazy. I accept AA is crazy, and I love that about AA. I go to some meetings where they read a very restrictive card about what you can say, and no one follows it. There's another meeting in New York City which says you can talk about drugs, and nobody talks about drugs there, which tells me that AA is paid authority, give them permission, it's no longer fun. I mean, AA is the 
resting place. But my battle with God, since I believe in God, has been the following, and I'm going to leave you with this. And I want to make sure that I read this right. Um, I was an accelerated math when I was in sixth grade. That's the truth. Um, I've always been too smart for my own good. That's just a fact of the matter. Brains don't help you with AA. IQ doesn't help you with AA. In fact, the smarter you think you are, the worse you're probably off. That's just the way it goes. Um, a non-AA a long time ago read this to a crowd full of AAs. It's my favorite non-AA talk in AA. And I'm going to leave you with what that person said. You have something great and awesome going on for you. Treat it tenderly. Respect what it has done for you and what it can do for others. As long as one man or woman dwells in the darkness you once knew, you cannot rest. You must try to find him and help him because one of you become one of you. By the grace of God, now who wants anonymous last for all time. That's from a non-AA member. I came here hating the world. I went to Midnight Madness where I didn't talk to the gay people. That's a great, crazy midnight meeting in the West Village. But I didn't talk to gay people because I don't like gay people because I am a moron, basically. You know? But that's what it was in early sobriety. I'm talking about people that bought me a hamburger when I didn't have the money. I'm talking about people that gave me a dollar to put in the basket so I had a dollar to put in the basket. You know, so my greatest God story is this. I have a brother who I stole in his childhood. I decided because he wasn't like me and my other brother that I should bully him and torture him and deprive him of the right to have a good childhood which I did. And when I was newly sober, he came out and told the family he was gay, which is not easy in my family. And he did it the way we make all big announcements in the Newton family. Very drunk at a big party, right? Just for the shock while he was there. But you know what he gave me? Some of my best friends in the world at that, by that time were gay. And he gave me that I would, my job was to be his brother. Nothing more, nothing less. I didn't mean to read any books. I didn't mean any of that. And he had transformed me, much beyond not taking a drink. And that brother, he's opposite to me. I'm the brother who came out of my mother who had been a disaster, you know. I don't know if you've ever heard Sandy B talk, but I like the Sandy B variety. The nurse that came in and said, Mrs. N., we're going to take Billy to the detox, you know. We have another place, you know. Sandy B always says that, you know. He should have been right. I should have been right for the detox. My brother Terrence, everything he touched became gold. Until a couple of years ago, he was missing. And we found out that he had a problem, like me. And then one day he was going to kill himself, and he called me. But I don't credit myself for saving my brother's life. It's not why I tell the story. I tell the story because he was able to call me because we were friends. He was able to call me because we were brothers. This is someone whose childhood I robbed. 
And that was repaired by the amendments process in Alcoholics Anonymous. So if you're new, I don't care how bad your life is right now. I don't care what burdens are sitting on your shoulders. Sometimes I think there's a saying in New York, when you've been around here a while, you have too many years and not enough days. And when you have too many years and not enough days, you forget what it's like to be new. Being new is hard. Surround yourself in Alcoholics Anonymous. Be in the middle of AA, because people in the middle of AA stay sober. And I, you know, I hope everyone gets home safe today, wherever everyone's going back to. I want to thank the committee for inviting me here. And I, I just want to pass on again that line in the spiritual appendix. There's only two things that can kill us. Belligerent denial and intolerance. Thanks. My name's Billy. I'm an alcoholic.